Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. Today, I'm privileged to be speaking with Helen Steele and Alison, who, together with three other women, Belinda, Lisa, and Naomi, have written an incredibly important book entitled Deep Deception, The Story of the Spy Cops Network by the Women Who Uncovered the Shocking Truth. Deep Deception was just released in March 2022 with Ebury Press, an imprint of Penguin, and will be of particular interest to scholars of policing and surveillance. The book is about these five women's experiences of being manipulated into serious long-term relationships with men who posed as activists, but were eventually exposed as undercover police officers tasked with reporting on these women and the activist groups with which they're involved. This is probably not what most of us imagine when we think of undercover policing, but we now know that in the UK, undercover officers have been participating in this kind of deep deception since at least the 1970s. And the reason we know that is because of ongoing detective work, campaigning and court cases spearheaded by women who were exploited by these officers, which of course includes the authors of this book. So, Alison and Helen, thank you for your work and thank you for joining me here today. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for inviting us. Okay, well, um, in the 1980s, I was involved with um, environmental and social justice activism. I got involved with a group called London Greenpeace in 1987. And not long after I got involved with that group, um, a guy started coming who called himself John Barker. Uh, He had a van, which was quite unusual uh, in those times. And um, he started offering to give people a lift home from the meetings Uh, which we all thought was a very kind thing to do. Um, And over the course of time, I I was usually the last to be dropped off just because of where I lived relative to everyone else. And um, we chatted on the journey and we became closer. And then John uh, lent on me. Uh, He told me that um, his... he, He lent on me for support after he told me that um, his parents had died. Initially, his dad died, and then a year later, he told me that his mum had died, um, and he let, he borrowed money off me to go to her funeral, um, which was supposedly in New Zealand. And we became uh, much closer and started a relationship, and um, we actually moved in together and talked about starting a family and he said he told me that he loved me deeply and that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with me and then after about um 18 and he said that he wanted us to have children together and we were kind of making plans for you know moving out of London and um living together and so on and then after a little while he started um seeming to be going through some sort of a breakdown and um disappeared and then he came back and yeah this kind of breakdown process went on for a prolonged period um and and was really distressing at the time and then he disappeared altogether and it didn't seem to make sense and I was very worried about him because he seemed to be going I I was worried he might even be suicidal and so after he disappeared I tried to track him down um by you know, following any of the clues that I had about who he was. And pretty much everything I investigated turned out to be, you know, I came up against a brick wall and it it turned out to be false. And um, so I started to worry about who he was and then I wanted to know, uh, you know, I investigated things like the deaths of his parents and then they turned out not to exist. Um, So it was becoming increasingly worrying. Um, A couple of years later... I, when I was involved with the McLeibel trial on the way home from court one day, I went into the registry of births, deaths and marriages and um, 
when I looked through the death records there, I discovered that he had actually been using the identity of a child who died when when he was eight years old. Uh, and at that point, that kind of threw my world into disarray um, because, you know, you think you know someone really well when you've been living with them for, you know, any length of time. Um, and I didn't even know anything about him. I didn't know the first thing. I didn't even know his name anymore all of a sudden. And it threw all my other relationships into doubt. And so I tried to carry on investigating uh, when McLeibel was over. I tried to investigate more. And eventually I found his marriage certificate and his real name and um, discovered that he'd been a police officer at the time he got married. And he was still married at the time I had the relationship with him. But I couldn't get any further until... Um, 18 years after he disappeared, I was contacted by a, a woman who um, also had been deceived into a relationship with an undercover policeman who'd been infiltrating a group called Reclaim the Streets. And she uh, told me that her, for, her former partner had told her that my ex-partner was an undercover policeman. Um, sh- um, shall I stop there now and, and then... We go on to the other side of the story afterwards, the court case or? Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. I think maybe we could move to uh, to Alison now. Um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your experience. So I think what's interesting hearing Helen recount part of her story is reminded, being reminded of how similar the stories that interconnect in our book are. So many of the things that Helen's mentioned about, you know, uh, John's breakdown, my partner of five years, who was also an undercover police officer, Mark Cassidy, Mark, real name Mark Jenner, also had a breakdown. He also had a van. Um, one of the, there are other similarities in terms of, you know, the way they courted us and, and the way they exited from our lives. Um, I was, and I think again in the book, what we've tried to do is kind of show these four stages of ourselves. You know, this early stage before we met these officers, and in my case, I was an idealistic young teacher. I was a trade union activist in the NUT, um, and I was a member of a group called the Colin Roach Centre. Um, and although politically, again, the five of us who've written the book, but the eight of us who brought that first case, politically, um, some of us are very different. Um, yet the thing that we had in common as younger people was a, a sense of, you know, idealism and trying to make progressive change and impact on progressive change um, in different ways. And then uh, in 1995, um, Mark Cassidy joined the Colin Roach Centre and I started a relationship with him quite soon after. Um, and we were together for five years. He moved into my flat after a year, but even in that first year, we were together all the time. And it was a very, what I thought was a very fun, happy, exciting relationship. We traveled together. We went to Israel and Vietnam and Thailand and Crete. So he had a proper passport and he had a proper national insurance card and he had a bank account. And he was, as far as I was concerned, my life partner. So much so that towards the end of our relationship in the last 18 months, we were in relationship counseling because I wanted to start family and he didn't. I Subsequently turned out he was married with three children already, which was part of the explanation. Not that I've ever been given an explanation, I should add. Um, so there was that five-year time relationship like Helen's where, you know, I was being manipulated and deceived and, you know, effectively abused. I didn't give my consent, my informed consent, I realise now, for that relationship. Um, and like Helen's described with John, Mark had a kind of faked seems to have a very real breakdown and I too was very worried about him he disappeared from my life and went to Germany and I got a letter and a note um but soon after he went I I just didn't fit I couldn't trace him I I was looking for him I was also very worried about him he scrubbed out the address on his grandfather's address in my notebook he'd you know he'd clearly I had nowhere to go. I had no. I phoned his work, and they didn't seem to be able to tell me where he was. It seemed too weird to have had someone who was so close and so enmeshed in my life to suddenly not be there, or for me to have no contact with anyone who knew or knew where he was. It didn't add up, and so I also went to the family records office. And again, you know, this is like the third stage, I suppose, of you know the detective work that certainly me. Helen and Lisa did and that we explain in the book of how we kind of became these 
you know, sort of, I, I describe myself as some sort of Miss Markle character, you know, also family record center, getting a private detective, doing a passport search. Um, and I met Helen and I, unlike Helen, who didn't really tell anyone about her searches, I told anyone who cared to listen. And then Helen and I uh, met in 2003 and talked about our, um, ver- our, our suspicions. Um, and at that point, I'd already felt, okay, I knew the answer to this. Helen gave me a bit more information that linked with something that I knew that made the puzzle fit a bit more. And at that point, I thought, okay, my relationship was with a state agent, a member of special branch, but I'm never going to find out anything more. Um, and then, you know, I carried on with my life. I was fortunate enough to meet somebody else who I grew up with, because I think if it hadn't been someone I grew up with, I wouldn't have trusted a new person because as Helen has said again, the impact on your ability to trust is phenomenal. The world is suddenly a very different place. Um, but I was able to connect with this person. I have, and then I was able to start a family. And then like seven years later, I'm still looking occasionally on the internet for undercover police or you know, Mark Cassidy, Mark Jenner, because he's made a mistake with a credit card, which again is written about in the book. And I had that name in my head as Jenner or Jenkins, I wasn't sure. Um, but then I saw in at the end of 2010 on, on an independent kind of media news site, um, the unmasking by Lisa of Mark Kennedy, Mark Stone. And at that point, I, you know, reconnected with Helen. And that's how, you know, the eight of us came together um, and brought the legal case with, with you know, Harriet Wistrich. Um, and that, and then from that, we've been able to build a campaign and support group and work together with other people um, who've also been spied on, women and, and people more widely, um, to hopefully, well, not to have exposed, you know, one of the biggest scandals in British policing. And we hope that this book, you know, we hope that Deep Deception goes some way to, you know, to reclaim the truth, but also act as an inspiration for people that, yes, terrible things can happen, but collectively, with really good people on your team, you can turn things around sometimes, or certainly start to. Yeah, I think one of the things that really does come through in the book is um, is the way that you you went about. Uh, I mean, not writing the wrong because you can't write this kind of violation, um, but you sought about you went about seeking justice. Um, and uh, teaming up with each other to do that. And again, as you've said, across um, different sort of political persuasions to do that in a way that's really, really impressive kind of solidarity. Um, we don't we don't always see that much of um, on the left as well. So um, I think it's really inspiring how you came together to fight that. I think a lot of, for a lot of people listening, the main question now might be, OK, why? Uh, why did these men target you in this way? Uh, why did this happen? I think the cruelty is evident. But but what was the broader context here? I mean, who who was behind this ultimately? I mean, I suppose you can't say ultimately, but but who were these men working for? Um, what was their goal uh, in, in doing this? The fact is we don't know. So it's all kind of supposition because we've had so little disclosure, if any. Um, and there are different, you know, their argument is it's public order. I think it's a form of, you know, it, it's akin to the Stasi, isn't it? It is a hoovering up of all information and intelligence um, across across the left for decades. You know, these units go back to 1968. Um, and from the from the disclosure that we've had through the public inquiry from, from 1968 to 82, the banality of some of the information that's being recorded about people's personal lives, deeply personal lives, and so many people, the scale of that surveillance is, um, it's kind of like a, you know, it's a sabot- it's sabotaging democracy. It, it is, you know, it's so, the scope and the breadth and the depth is so vast that, um, you know, it's, it's unclear in some ways as to, as to what the purpose, argue one, one hypothesis is that if you can gather information on an intelligence on absolutely anybody who's politically active, then should any of those people rise to the top in any capacity, be it government or 
or in any place, then you have got, you know, I mean, it's a story of fiction, you know, kind of spy fiction, but it's what our lives have been. But, you know, here's the piece of paper that says you did this, you were involved in this activity. Are you really a reliable candidate to stand for, you know, whatever position in government you might be standing for is one possibility. The other is to sabotage and control um, progressive movements for change. Um, again, there are debates within the move, different movements, I think, about the, the impact that the undercover police have had in that respect. But personally, I feel that has been an impact. I think that certainly in, um, in some areas, I think they have kind of impacted on the agenda and they certainly, they split movements. I mean, I've got personal experience of that, really, where Mark would kind of, you know, say one thing to one person and something else to someone else. So I think they, you know, I think that their their role was, you know, destructive and an assault on democracy. And it's shocking that people don't really seem to care that much. Many people don't seem to be that bothered by that by it. I just wanted to come back to um, why we brought the case because it's kind of connected to to this issue. Um, so as Alison said, um, Lisa uh, exposed the fact that her her current partner at that point in time, she discovered he would he was actually an undercover cop, and that was then being reported in the media as as though he was some kind of rogue officer, and the police were very much uh, keen to portray it in that way. And um, I can remember talking, and I talk about this in the book that um, when. I was chatting to a friend who had actually helped me investigate um, John when I was trying to find out the truth about him. So he knew what had happened with me and he believed my story. But he, when he heard about Lisa's story and Mark Kennedy, he, he couldn't quite believe it because it just seemed too extreme to believe that, that, that the police would have a spy in the environmental movement for seven years. And, um, you know, I'd had a similar reaction with my dad when I told him I'd found the marriage certificate and my dad had said, no, no, I think you're being paranoid. That wouldn't happen in this country. Um, and, and so I was just conscious of, of the fact that people do like to believe that we live in a democracy. And yet here we were, we had the evidence that actually there was completely undemocratic practices going on in order to undermine protest movements and women were being abused um, as a part of that. Um, And that was why I felt that, um, you know, the only way really to get people to believe that this was going on was to bring legal proceedings so that it became a, a kind of concrete thing that was going on that the media could report on um, and so on. Um, and, and, you know, as Alison said, through coming together, um, that was a massively empowering experience for us because so many of the things that we had thought were just like individual things that we had experienced, that we had fallen for, uh, and, you know, why hadn't we noticed that? Um, we could see by talking to each other and hearing each other's experiences that actually these were patterns of abuse that the officers were using on us that, you know, there was no way that that could have come about accidentally. This had to be through some kind of form of, um, you know, instruction, whether that be in a in a guidebook or whether that be passing it down by word of mouth from, you know, officers, pre-existing officers. So, so yeah, that um, the the whole purpose of bringing the case was to bring this out into the open and and make sure that you know they the police couldn't pretend that it was just one officer and nobody needed to really worry about it because it he's left now and it's all over. Um, you know, the reality was there were eight of us in the original court case um, that had been deceived into relationships by five separate police officers over a period spanning 25 years and it completely shows that that's a systematic um you know systematic abuse of women um basically to shore up the fake identities of these officers to enable them to undermine protest movements so so yeah 
Right. And that's that's a really key point, the the last that you mentioned, that it's it does seem like the relationships were to you were used to give these officers credibility as they infiltrated the, these movements, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I talk about this in the book as well, where I confronted John um, many years later at uh, Sydney Airport. And one of the questions I asked him was, why had he deceived me into a relationship? And he his reply was, well, what did I have? All I had was a van. And his van was like the tools of his uh, of his trade, what he was, you know, what he was using to ingratiate himself into the activist community. And that was exactly what he was doing with me as well. It's, it, yeah, it's disgusting abuse of women. Yeah, and it also goes beyond that too. I mean, I think in terms of the, the, the sort of the, again, this this level of cruelty and, and that seeming, it does start to look like a tactic when when you see it play out across um, multiple women's experiences, right? The, the way that um, officers made this sort of traumatic exit from people's lives. And of course, it's not um, just the women that they were in relationships with. It's all of their friends and, and supposed comrades in these groups who may, you know, may be distressed by their disappearance, wondering what happened to their friend. Um the uh, yeah the implications for organizing are potentially quite uh yeah quite huge and and um i thought that uh particularly helen your experience where am i correct me if i'm wrong but you you were in the process of going th- of being sued by mcdonald's and defending yourself um in the mcleibel case which if our listeners haven't heard of you should absolutely look it up um uh, that's I mean, maybe we could talk more about that later. Um, but essentially, McDonald's um, sued two activists for distributing pamphlets outside of McDonald's. Well, sued multiple activists, threatened to sue multiple activists, and um, and uh, two stood up to them, one of whom was Helen. Um, and that case dragged on for years. And at the same time, um, John Barker was sending you these tortured letters Um right sort of toying toying with you coming in and out of your life is it's my understanding they're correct yeah I mean actually so there's a bit more to it than that as well because in fact um Bob Lambert who um is is another of the officers that was in this unit um and actually went on to supervise the unit he had deceived Belinda into a relationship um she's one of the other authors of the book uh, and he had been involved in writing the anti-McDonald's leaflet that we were sued over. So um, so then fast forward to 1990, um, when I was in a relationship with John, um, and within a few months uh, of the relationship starting, he came round to my house and gave me a lift back to his flat, and the rip from McDonald's was served on me as I stepped out of his van. Uh, and I suspect that there was collusion at that point. You know, he then he then suggested to me that I shouldn't fight the case. Um, you know, McDonald's whole strategy at this point was to gain apology from uh, people who were criticising them. Um, they didn't want a court case, obviously, but they, they wanted this. They wanted these po- apologies to parade around to basically say, look, our critics admit that it's all false. And so, um, you know, him suggesting that I apologise was, you know, just part of that picture, really. Uh, and then he came to he came to collect me from legal meetings when we just had legal advice about how to fight the case. He was involved in the support campaign and talked, you know, listened to us discussing our strategy. And then, yes, when it actually got to the point when we started to have pre-trial hearings, um, he this was when he was um, sending me all these sort of deeply emotional letters and I think provoking unnecessary arguments. Um, you know, there's a, there's a bit that I talk about in the book where we've got, actually got a really significant court hearing that same day and he turns up and he's not been there for a little while and he turns up at my flat uh, what was our flat and and picks an argument over something you know ridiculous that he'd he'd created and 
it really uh, destabilized me. And I pretty much had a, a breakdown that at that point. And it was really quite something to drag myself out and, um, you know, then then go and fight in court. And maybe he thought he could prevent me from going to court. I, you know, I don't know the answers to these questions. The police have still not given us any disclosure. We've had not a single page relating to, you know, what they put down on in, in files about us or why any of this was going on, who was authorising it, what um, our partners, you know, were recording about us. They had they had access to the inside of our homes and the inside of our heads. And we just, we don't have any answers at the moment. So, I mean, actually, that's another reason for why we wrote the book, uh, because we want these answers and... Um, and the public should want these answers as well to, as to what these units were doing, uh, undermining movements for social progress. You know, it's it's an absolute outrage that that there were this there were these police units spying on 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 movements against racism, against sexism, yeah. for environmental change, on spying on trade unions and so on. And and yeah, it's actually it's it's. We, we need we and the public need the truth about what these units were doing um, and and who at who at whose behest really and I think I think oh, following I on from that I think one of the things that I don't know that it was necessarily a motivation for writing the book but I think it is an outcome from the book is that it makes concrete of the very abstract concepts of the state and I think that you know I work in, you know, I was a teacher for years and, you know, you're constantly trying to make, you know, make clear or, or, or understand what we mean by certain abstract concepts and the lack of political literacy that, that I feel that there is within the education system. And, you know, in a way, I'm not, I think this is a book that is important as kind of people's political education, which is an inversion in a way of how our stories were t- uh, told by the media when they first kind of were covered because the way they've tended to be covered is as human interest stories. They're quite titillating. They're fascinating from a human perspective because they're relatable in that most people have, you know, or many people have experienced betrayal or, you know, heartbreak. So I understand why, you know, why they have been presented like that, but the politics and the, um, the issues about power and democracy and control are, issues that tend to not to get um voiced that much when when we are asked questions about our story so i think it you know one of the outcomes of the book i hope is that as i say it makes concrete what we mean by the state so in answer to your question who was behind this well this is kind of a a combination of many different institutions you know the the home office ultimately and the home secretary are responsible for the, for the police for policing um you know special branch is a is a section of the met police and the sds the special demonstration squad that john and mark were members of that later became the mpoiu you know these are subunits within special branch and we're told that they were elite units you know, in a way that it seems from even from the public inquiry information that we've had from 1968 to 82, that these units were, you know, just kind of making the rules up. Well, not kind of, they were making the rules up as, as they were going along. Um, and some of the wrongdoing that became like wild by our years um, was set really early on. And that culture of racism and sexism and homophobia and anti-Semitism that is evidenced in those early documents and that we've evidenced as kind of testimony to our own lives through through our book and, and other um, accounts that we give of, of what's happened to us. I hope, you know, it helps wider audience, excuse me, wider audiences um, kind of reflect on what we mean by the state because what, what one of the things that people said to us, you know, we were at, most of us were kind of left wing activists, um, broadly left wing. Why you go? What do you? What remedy do you think the state is going to provide for you, given that it was the state that was infiltrating you? But as Helen said, it was a way of raising these issues and exposing these issues, and you can only work within the, you know, certain parameters. 
But I mean, as Helen was saying as well, my dad, who, you know, knew Mark and, you know, when we went and visited him on holiday, where, you know, we saw a lot of fair bit of my dad. Um, he, I remember shouting at him. I think it's, I think I've written about this in the book. When the story about Mark went on the Guardian, I think in 2013, and I think after that, when we had our, I think in 2013 was the first time he said it, when it was suddenly in the Guardian, but it might even have been when we settled the case three years later, he suddenly went, oh, so he really was an undercover policeman. <laughs> so it's like, right, I've been telling you this for years, and you've been just thinking that I'm nuts, but now it's kind of on a BBC website or on the news, it's it's credible and, and people take it seriously. Because I think, you know, this this is difficult really, but I think that at the time when I was saying it and people and for who Helen, whoever Helen spoke to at the time, people thought we were conspiracy theorists. And I've got no truck for conspiracy theorists, you know, I don't, but, um, you know, in a way I prefer to think of it as um, sort of an analysis of the state rather than a, a kind of a conspiracy theory, because I think, you know, people suspected this was happening, but no one really, people suspected there were spies in progressive movements, but nobody, I don't think, really anticipated that they were going to be embedded in women's lives in the ways that they have been. Right, absolutely. And and for the avoidance of doubt, it has, I mean, it has been demonstrated um, very conclusively that these these men were undercover police officers. That's not, as far as I'm aware, being disputed. In 2015, we basically forced the police to make an unprecedented apology um, where they acknowledged that these uh, relationships were serious violations of our human rights and um, amounted to abusive, degrading and inhumane treatment. Um, So it's absolutely not in dispute that these relationships happened. And they're all since confirmed, aren't they, as well? These particular officers in our book are all confirmed as undercover police. Yeah, fact, and they haven't suspected. Any of them. Yeah, the most they ever yeah. said is, is NCMD, neither confirmed nor denied, is, you know, which right. is what they said about Mark for years. Right. Actually. Well, we, 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 we do, I mean, in the second part of the book is is about the court, the legal battle that we fought. Yeah. And, um, you know, the police constantly... Uh, tried to get our case struck out. They refused to follow the normal procedures, which are that that um, both sides are supposed to make disclosure of any documents that they've got are, that are relevant. Uh, the police just said, oh, no, we're not doing that. We can neither confirm nor deny that any of these men were police officers. Um, and we had endless court cases, endless court hearings, um, you know, battling against that. And, and that was what led to them uh, finally being forced to to make this public apology to us. Um, so, yeah, there's no doubt at all that these relationships happened uh, and that they shouldn't have happened and that the police acknowledged they shouldn't have happened. And yet, actually, um, other women that have since found out are still being forced to, um, you know, go through intrusive psychological reports and so on, in order to um, prove the harm caused from these relationships, even though when they made their apology to us, the police acknowledged that the the relationships were wrong. So, yeah, there's you know there's still work to be. There's no there's no dispute that these men were police officers and that the relationships happened, but the police are doing their utmost to try and avoid um, actually. Um, <clears throat> putting right what they have done wrong by giving women the answers, the truth that they need and, um, you know, paying damages to women um, who've been really, you know, badly affected by this. And there's more than 50 women now that we know who have been deceived into this re- these relationships. So, you know, from our original eight, there's, the, you know, the whole thing... And I'm sure there's more to there's more to come out as well. You know, the reality is that in the undercover policing inquiry, a huge proportion of the cover names of these officers have been withheld. Um, and you know, if their names remain withheld, women can't come forward to say, "Well, actually, I knew him, and he deceived me into a relationship." So we have no doubt that there more there are 
are way more than 50 women. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a long, hard battle to get the full truth out into the open. And in addition to the women, um, the 50 women who um, have been deceived into those relationships by the undercover cops, there's also the wives of those undercover cops. So in terms of that kind of institutional sexism, you know, the wives were part of the operation in a way because these men had to be married, certainly in the SDS. They had to be married um, in order to be deployed because it was considered then they'd have something to go back to. So the, They were also used by the police effectively, yeah. Right, right. Right. So, and I mean, it's also worth mentioning, um, I, I don't know what the current numbers are, it's at least um, four officers fathered children with activists. Uh, there are more do, that we know about now. And, and one of them is, is, is written about, not, not this particular, a different relationship he had, is, is written about in uh, the book, um, right? Uh, yeah. And yeah, I, Bob Lambert. I, I think, yeah. And I think, if you think about Lambert, and also there's another officer who came through the inquiry called Vince, uh, Harvey, um, they there and John. It's true for John as well, isn't it? That we know of. Just with those three examples, and Andy Tolls is another one. Four examples of where they went on to, and the influence that they then went on to have, either within policing or in associated, you know, in an associated role. So Andy Tolls became the deputy police and crime commissioner for Peterborough and Cambridgeshire, I think. Um, and Bob Lambert became a professor at St Andrews University um, in counterterrorism and intelligence. John Dyes, that's how Helen confronted him, you know, went on to be training Indian police in kind of, you know, undercover policing tactics. Um, and Vince Harvey, he went on to be the director of, what was it, Helen? Is it the National Crime Agent? Not the NCIS? National Crime Intelligence. I've the title, but uh, one of the a senior, kind of a very senior. Yeah. So this is somebody who, you know, had, was was had to accept at the last hearings last May that Madeline would not have had a relationship with him had she known would not have consented to a relationship had she known he was an undercover police officer. This is somebody who then went on be very senior in the police force so i think in terms of you know 20 30 years later so in terms of how again concrete examples of how that institutional sexism functions and how it facilitates you know it, it how it facilitates a culture that is misogynistic and sees women as you know objects that are there to benefit men fundamentally right Absolutely. There's so much to talk about there. And I mean, um, yeah, I think this is, I think something a lot of activists and academics and journalists have been have been talking and writing about um, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter is, is how part, at least part of the police's role is to maintain hierarchies based on race, class or gender. And I think the really important and interesting contribution your work makes is that you talk about not just who is being policed, um, but also how that policing was done. And I think that reveals really important things about the nature of policing and what, you know, maintaining order uh, means. Um, and I, I wonder if, if we could if we could go back. I mean, we could say a lot about police misogyny um, I, in, in, in London especially um, and, well, regarding the Metropolitan Police. But I, I wonder if we could go back to... Uh, thinking about who who was being targeted, um, could we? What kind of groups were being targeted? I mean, obviously, um, Alison, you were a trade unionist, and Helen, you were with London Greenpeace. Um, what other groups do we know about? Well, we know uh, through the public inquiry that at least one thousand groups in the UK were spied on by these secret political policing units, um, and of those, less than a handful were right wing all the rest were basically what you'd call left wing or progressive organizations you know socialist groups uh, socialist groups anti-apartheid groups um you know women's liberation movement in the late 60s early 70s uh the grieving families of um victims of racist murder and police brutality uh, 
trade unionists, um, you know, fighting for better wages and uh, against health and safety, um, you know, poor practices. It becomes like a kind of, you know, Monty Python-esque list, you know, the Judean People's Front, the People's Front of Judea. You know, it's literally, it's like anybody who wanted to organise politically for progressive change. I mean, I was, you know, the Colin Roach Centre was a combination of two groups originally, the Trade Union Support Unit, Patney's Trade Union Support Unit, when it's lost its funding from the GLC, and Hackney Community Defence Association, which was fundamentally, it was before my time, you know, before I was involved, but it was fundamentally a police monitoring group trying to expose and hold to account um, corrupt police practices at Stoke Newington Police Station. Um, so uh, we also were involved in anti-fascism, and I think anti-fascism was a big focus, wasn't it, of, of these, you know, but it, it was everything. If you were organising politically, um, then they wanted they wanted to know what you were doing. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's just that the work was divvied up between Special Branch and MI5. You know, I think some of the Communist Party was surveyed by MI5, probably Militant was surveyed by MI5, because, and, and everything else was, was surveyed by Special Branch and these units. And I they think... Were basically, you, yeah, I was just going to say, they were basically spying on anyone who might potentially form any sort of challenge to the status quo. So whether whether that be at the low level of, um, you know, an individual uh, police wrongdoing or, or whether it be at the, you know, high level of um, challenging the, the government of the day, um, they, they thought everyone should, they just wanted intelligence on everyone to, to prevent to try and undermine uh, undermine change. Yeah, and their role their role essentially is to kind of protect, is to uphold, you know, is to protect capital, isn't it? I mean, that, you know, and I suppose they saw some of the organ some of the organisations as a threat to capital, a threat to that, or certainly what the officers on the ground thought. Though I I don't know. I mean, again, there's some stuff coming through from the inquiry, but overwhelmingly it looks like they were having a jolly. You know, lots of them just seemed to be having a really good time. They were, you know, so you, one of the kind of recurring themes after Mark disappeared and when I was starting to suspect what he was, and, and very few people believed me, but then when we came together and, you know, um, as, as we said earlier, it was in the press and people did start to believe it, many people then were like, but he seemed to really like us. <laughs> You know, I think he really loved you and he seemed to really like us. Well, and until I found out that he was married with three children, which I didn't find out until about 2011, I allowed myself to believe that maybe he loved me, That, but he, it was, he was still, you know, sabotaging our movement. Once I realised that he was married with children and really got together with the other woman, women, and like you said, you know, it was kind of like a consciousness raising between ourselves. Um, at that point, I was like, oh, no, these men were not capable of love in the way that we understand that 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 concept. They were, um, you know, somebody said to me recently about a triangle, um, a triangle of understanding of sociopathic behavior. And that these three points of the triangle are, are narcissism, uh, Machiavellianism and sadism. And, and hearing that kind of gave me a bit goosebumps, really, because those that, those are features, I think, of, of Mark's behaviour. In fact, when when he disappeared, I went to I went back to see. To be, I was in counselling with him. You know, we were going to relate marriage counselling, and he disappeared. So we had an appointment to go to, and I went by myself. And I think I went a couple of times after, and. The, the last time I went, I said, this is what I think he is. I think he was a, a spy. I think he was some kind of state spy. Um, and she did say that I'm not entirely surprised that you're saying that. She said, and she showed me the, the notes that she made on our first visit, because on my side, there's loads of information. And on, on her side, on his side, rather, there was hardly anything. He'd hardly said anything in that first kind of assessment. Um, and she said, oh, I thought you were going to say he was a hitman or something. But she said then his behaviour is, is sadistic. 
you know, the way that he's behaved, even not knowing for sure anything, but just that, you know, because it's, and I think in Helen's, you know, I know Helen's case and story and have known it, you know, for over 10 years now, but reading it in our book, as John's behaviour feels totally sadistic. I mean, you know, there's no hierarchy of pain, but compared, if you had to compare the two, the way Mark disappeared, he came back, he went and he came back once and then he went again and that was it. John, I mean, you know, it was going on for months and months and months. And I think that they, you know, it begs questions, doesn't it, about the vetting processes for these officers and the recruitment processes because it looks almost like the profile was, are you a narcissist? Are you, are you Machiavellian? And are you sadistic? Yes, yes, yes. You've got the job. Right. Yeah. And, and we know that this was going on as well until 2010 or 2011. Is it what, how, what's the latest confirmation we have of an active um, undercover? Do you know? 2010 was when Lisa exposed um, Mark Kennedy, but obviously the police have never volunteered. None of this would be in the public arena were it not for us exposing it. So the reality is that the relationships could still be continuing today and we wouldn't know because the police never tell anyone that they're they're using these kind of tactics. And there are cases of women who came on after us, who found out afterwards, where the officer was in touch for years, for years afterwards, dropping into their lives, messaging them. So, I mean, and they didn't know, they didn't suspect anything. They they still knew them as their ex-boyfriend who had gone and travelled. So much more current than 2010. Right, yeah. Yeah, and of course, there's so much that we just don't know. There's this massive inequality of information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, really important. I mean, the work you've been doing on this is incredibly important, and I, I wonder if we could move to that. I mean, you you talk a bit in the book about how you, um, yeah, how you met and, and started talking, and you know, began this process of you'd say feminist consciousness raising about um, what happened to you um how how did you then go on to campaign and and sort of bring uh court cases um i know there's i mean there's been a few um how how did how did you go about that well initially we decided that um as a group we needed um a sort of support campaign because obviously it took a lot of our energy and time and indeed our money to kind of get the case underway. And then there's expenses on the way and then we needed, you know, publicity to let people know what was going on. So we um, set up Police Spies Out of Lives, um, which was initially supporting us, but has obviously expanded to support women who discovered after um, after that time, that they had also been deceived into relationships. And then as, as more women, as, you know, our case became settled and more women became involved, the campaign has kind of, it, it's, the, the numbers have grown. And so, you know, we've also, we've used strategic litigation as a, a key way, as Helen said right at the beginning, of exposing and making public and giving kind of media hooks to, to different elements of, of the stories, if you like. So, you know, there was a civil litigation that we started with um, and then Kate Wilson was able to go on and make a, a Human Rights Act claim in the Investigatory Powers Tribunal and, you know, Police Spies Out of Lies as an organisation were able to do some of the press and some of the media around that and also some of the support work. But again, um, we also supported Monica um, who took forward a case, um, tried to take forward a, a criminal case uh, against Jim Boiling. And, uh, but the CPS threw that out, saying that there was no case to answer because um, the relationships were based on genuine feelings, which is just beyond nonsense. I mean, you know, the idea that if, you know, a teacher was prosecuted for having a relationship with a 15-year-old child, the defence would be that it was genuine feelings. Um, and that went to judicial review and was unfortunately lost there. So there's discussions, I think, about what happens next, about taking a criminal case. But there's, um, 
Uh, yeah, but so there's strategic litigation, but there's also trying to make, you know, have an influence on legislation because because we were in a position where we had to settle because the, the nature of civil claims, really, um, we weren't in a position where we were able to kind of have our day in court without bankrupting ourselves. So I suppose part of our campaigning is also about trying to influence change um, in the law because since COVID, they've meant the government have passed, you know, very quickly changes to the, you know, the Covert Human Intelligence Act, which um, puts no limits on the activities of CHIS. That could be uh, an informer, an undercover police officer, um, a member, an agent from the security services. There are no limits on what they can do. And the argument is that the limits are there from the Human Rights Act. Um, that, that, that the Human Rights Act is there to protect against being murdered, raped or tortured. But what Kate Wilson's case proved, because she won her case, her case um, in the IPT, that showed that, you know, the Human Rights Act didn't act as a protection. And, you know, the police violated, I think, five, five uh, acts, five um, articles of that act. And, and finally, in terms of campaigning, is disclosure you know is give us our files the you know the police um have had information about our cases specifically the five of us who wrote the book and the eight original women for like 11 years so how hard is it for them to be able to hand over our files because we are still in a position where we don't know yes we, we received we fought for and won this you know unprecedented apology from the police but we've got no answers I don't know what, whether Mark was or wasn't authorised to be at various family functions. I don't know, you know, what was reported on me, whether it was accurate or not accurate. And, um, you know, almost as a kind of a remedy, we should be given, at the very least, you know, the, the people who kind of have, have brought uh, civil claims and who, about whom the files have already been collected, we should be given our files very immediately and other core participants should be disclosed their files you know now really that seems like something we've been seeing throughout the inquiry which is ongoing not just the refusal to disclose but also that there's been um some rather selective amnesia on the part of police um testifying right former undercover officers which has been interesting to see um i wonder if we might talk a bit about the current undercover policing inquiry um how it came about where it's at what it's covering in 2013, um, me and Belinda um, took part in a dispatches documentary where we talked on television for the first time about these um, deceptive relationships. Uh, and we met with Peter Francis, who was a whistleblower from the Special Demonstration Squad. And in that same programme, he, um, he talked about how he had been tasked to spy on the grieving family of Stephen Lawrence, um, a young black man who'd been murdered by racists in um, South London and then the police had completely failed to properly investigate his murder and bring the murderers to justice. And instead, um, this unit, the Special Demonstration Squad, had spied on them. So um, the the kind of um, scandal of, of that story being on television, I think, um, made the government realise that they needed to do something to, to look into this. The then Home Secretary, Theresa May, then um, ordered this review um, called the Ellison Review. And when he reported um, off the back of that, she then declared that there needed to be a whole public inquiry into undercover policing. Um, and that was set up in... 2014 and it formally opened in 2015 it was actually supposed to finish and report by 2018 but um, basically at every stage of the way the police have been um, demanding secrecy over even the cover identities of the officers um, their fake names i.e um let alone their real names, and over every single document um, that's in the files. 
they go through this ridiculous redaction process involving multiple police officers looking at every document before they agree to what can be disclosed. And the consequence of that is that the relationship, the the inquiry has just been dragging on uh, and only finally started in late 2020. Um, it's only so far heard evidence up to about the the late 1970s, um, and it's not. It's about to hear some evidence from the managers um, from when the unit was set up in 1968 until the sort of end of the 70s. And then we've got a two-year gap before any further evidence is heard relating to the 80s and then in subsequent years, the 90s and the 2000s and so on. Um, and it's now expected that the inquiry won't end before 2026 at the uh, at the earliest. So, you know, it's an absolutely ridiculous situation where the people who were responsible for these human rights abuses, the police are being allowed to stall and set the pace of the investigation into their wrongdoing um, and, you know, are basically denying justice and truth to the people who were spied on by them. Um, yeah, it's it's shocking, but we've, we've basically got to keep fighting because we've got no other option. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier again about how the state functions. Because they used to, there was a Yes Minister um, program, you know, comedy years ago, and there was an episode about public inquiries. You know, it's like it's almost as if the public a public inquiry is an establishment way of saying, okay, we know there was a bit of a problem about something, but we'll shelve it and put it over there, and then you know, all the people who are impacted by what went wrong probably, or we hope, will either give up or die. But and by the time we do finally report, you know, it 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 won't feel so raw. And it won't feel so painful. Um, we can say it's all historical. Right, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things, a public inquiry is set up because something has gone wrong. And yet the way that, you know, I think some of us have felt um, thus far is that, that somehow some of us are kind of, maybe not us personally, but the core participants, the people who have had the wrong done to them, who have been spied on and have had their uh, right to protest um, violated uh, and their privacy violated, they've been made to feel like, you know, they've, they've got some case to answer somehow, um, as if they've kind of contributed almost to the wrongdoing by by voicing views that really they shouldn't have voiced so loudly or or, or they shouldn't have organised to, to make, hurt, make themselves heard. So it, it feels in a way that, you know, I said earlier that, that the whole deployments were um, assaults on democracy, and in a sense, you know, I don't think it's too grand to say that it's almost like democracy is on trial here because, you know, it, we want a finding, we want findings that these operations were institutionally sexist and institutionally racist and the police are institutionally sexist and continue to be institutionally racist. That the deployments across the board were unlawful and that this was, you know, these, these were not um, <clears throat> acceptable policing standards or operations in a, in a democratic country but you know it, it feels it felt at the time when mark disappeared and my world all went kind of upside down and wobbly it felt that this idea of a, that we of kind of western capitalist democracies that there's some kind of illusion that they're you know yes that we do have certain freedoms but fundamentally we're being boxed in and kind of managed almost, kind of, you know, managed sort of out of the way, quietly. And I, I, I sometimes, you know, I kind of feel like I can hear Mark's voice and the voice of, you know, some of his colleagues and his bosses over the years of, it, particularly in terms of the way they behave towards us. Well, what they don't know won't hurt them. And they're only upset now because they found out. They were quite happy at the time. They would got, you know, they, most of them will, get, will, will have got over it and they'll get over it. And I think that's kind of perhaps what some of them felt the justification was for the wider operations as well. They never know. And we're basically doing it for their own good because we're keeping the country ticking over and we're just keeping things on an even keel. And the, there was no, you know, no thought given um, and certainly no safeguarding or risk assessment for any of us or any of the other people in our lives or their lives that, that they damaged. 
in a you know very cavalier way how can people find out more and potentially get involved with or support your campaign i mean i know that police spies out of lives is not the only group working on these issues um so perhaps you could tell tell me a bit about the other kinds of activism or resources that are available for people to look into so in the first instance we've encouraged people to buy the deception and to read it and share it widely. I mean, because, and I say that because, you know, we have got, um, you know, our website, Police Buys Out of Lives, and our kind of banner image in the jacket of the book. It's very much, you know, a book, you know, that is there to kind of promote our campaign and to raise awareness of our campaign. So on social media, on, on Twitter, we're it's out underscore, at, no, at out underscore of underscore lives and as I always say about the name police rise out of lives we were quite traumatized weren't we when we came when we came up with it so it doesn't isn't something that necessarily rolls off the tongue so we've also got another website called spycop.co.uk which has um you know some kind of it has a timeline and it has some other information and some articles and some kind of short chunks of you know FAQs like you know isn't this the same as just being cheated on by any boyfriend so out there's our campaign work and we are always needing funds to carry on our support work so you can support us by donating and by spreading the word through you know social media and and across networks the other um, groups that we work closely with is the COPS campaign which is a campaign opposing police surveillance and ERG, which is the Undercover Research Group, um, and the Blacklist Support Group, and the Monitoring Group. And then we could go on and on. There are, you know, I think we, you mentioned earlier, and I think it is an absolute strength of the broader campaign, is that we have got one thing in common. You know, there are many, many things that we disagree on across, you know, all the different people who are spied on, but the thing we've got in common is that we had our privacy um, and our right to protest and are violated. Um, and I think that has made us it quite a, an unusual kind of united front. And I think it, it's a, we're probably, you know, the police's worst nightmare, actually, because I don't think they ever imagined that um, these very, very secret, you know, very closed units would be exposed in the ways that they have, have been. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, and again, the kind of echo chambers that are, you know, that, that are some social media platforms means that sometimes you feel, oh, people really know about this. You know, people really get this story and they've heard it. And then you speak to somebody like in real life and you realise, no, they, it hasn't reached as widely as we had hoped. So, you know, I think it, for us, it's really about getting the word out there that, yes, there are historic abuses. But the impact is still very live and the frameworks, the kind of legislative frameworks and the governmental frameworks that were in place then are still in place. And in some cases, like, you know, to the power of five or six, you know, the capacity for surveillance compared to when I was being monitored in 1995 to 2000 to now, you know, it's a completely different ballpark. So I think you know, for that reason as well, to understand, you know, we, we can't understand where we are unless we know where we've come from. We can't even begin to understand the nature of surveillance today um, unless we understand the, some of the tactics and practices and aims and objectives that were underpinning those deployments that, that we experienced. Right. So consider that a call to action, uh, not just for the, you know, the British public, but also specifically for scholars of policing and surveillance. This is this is an important um, case. I mean, a number of cases. This is an important area to pay attention to when we're thinking about those topics. Um, I'm wondering if you've got anything to add before we wrap up, Helen. Um. Well, I, I suppose the thing that I usually like to say at the end of these events, because I know that uh, a lot of people can find it very um, disheartening to uh, find out about this level of um, state interference with with um, society, movements for progress, and specifically in women's lives. And um, 
you know, it it can make people feel like, well, there's no point in trying to fight for change uh, because, you know, they're going to stop us. But there's a couple of things to say in response to that, which is that um, many of the movements that have been um, ultimately successful, uh, such as the anti-apartheid movement and the suffragettes, were in fact spied on um Initially, that doesn't make it okay that they were spied on. You know, they may have achieved their aims much sooner had the police not interfered with, um, you know, with those campaigns and and um, sabotaged them along the way. Uh, but it 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 does mean that we shouldn't be defeatist. Um, and the other side of it is is that, you know, the flip the flip side is basically the reason that they are infiltrating these movements is because they know that when we do come together to talk about the kind of society we want to see in the future, you know, an end to injustice and oppression uh, and a a more sustainable society, they know that when we talk to our friends, our neighbours, our workmates about those issues, that's when change starts to happen. Um, And so really we should take heart from that and, and go about that and do it far more frequently because we do all deserve a much better world. All right to that. Oh my gosh, I have a tear in my eye, Helen. (laughs) 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 On that inspiring note, um, let's end there. Uh, Once again, my name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Helen Steele and Alison, who are two of the five women who together wrote Deep Deception, the story of the Spy Cops Network by the women who uncovered the shocking truth. Deep Deception was released with Ebury Press in March 2022, and I highly recommend that you pick up a copy at your local bookstore or ask your local or university library to acquire it. Thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network, and thank you so much for joining me, Alison and Helen. Thank you. Thank you.